Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Jane Prater, and I am joined by host, co-host Dan Ferlito. Just wh- while we introduce hosts, I would like to give a shout out, of course, to our co-host, um, Patrick, who's in Boston and couldn't make it to the interview, and again, is very jealous that he can't be here. He gives his regards to uh, Professor Shanahan, and um, yeah, we're, we're all, we have him here in spirit. He read these questions. Didn't seem to have anything to add, which makes me feel good that, um, you know, we we thought of everything we could possibly ask you. You covered so, all the bases. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Patrick's here with us in spirit, so we Indeed. thank him for all his work that he's done. And, um, yeah. For sure. And today our guest is Timothy Shanahan. Thank you so much, author of Philosophy, Philosophy and Blade Runner. Um, I have difficulty saying that word too sometimes, <laughs> and, I, and I'm, a, I'm a professional. So whenever I have to open a show, I have I think about the words I'm going to say. I'm serious. I I've done it so many times. I'm always thinking about it. But uh, thank you for being on the show today. It's a pleasure. We really appreciate it. Um, I know we've been talking to you for some time, trying to wrangle wrangle you into an interview. Um, so to open us up, really, my first question to you is: uh, It's kind of the wide Blade Runner. How did how did your relationship begin with this film and then blossom into a book? But I want to know kind of the beginning of it. What, what was that like? Sure. Let me, even before I get to that, let me just say uh, thank you for inviting me to this. And when I first heard about it, I thought, this is fantastic. Somebody has a podcast about Blade Runner. And the name of this podcast, I think, is just fantastic. It's just, I don't know who gets credit for that. Uh, actually, our, our, brilliant, our former, um, I founded the podcast, but I was trying to come up with a name. And I'm pretty good with names, but I just wasn't coming up with anything that I loved. And uh, one of my former co-hosts for my Alien podcast, he said, what about Shoulder of Orion? I was like, uh-huh. yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so, you knew that was it. Thank you, Ryan. Right, you because are. for fans, it has mm-hmm. an instant, instant resonance. Totally. Everybody knows exactly totally. what that means. In fact, actually, when I was walking down the street looking for you, I had like several people look at the shirt and they looked at me like, what is that? They didn't say anything. <laughs> yeah. but, okay. Yeah. So my relationship to Blade Runner, um, it's a little embarrassing, I think, in a way. Um, I was a late a latecomer to the movie. I really was. When I was in graduate school, um, I remember walking past this lounge, and there was a sign on the door advertising a screening of Blade Runner. This was about 1984, so just two years after the film came out. And I looked at it briefly, looked at the poster. It wasn't very explanatory, and I thought, why would I want to spend time watching a movie about speed skaters? <laughs> and I and I kept going. I didn't give another thought. I literally didn't give another thought for That's years hilarious. and years and years. And you know, now I'm embarrassed to think that was an opportunity I missed. I could have been thinking about it for so many more years. <laughs> I could have enjoy, enjoyed thinking yeah. about it for so many more years. I missed out. Um, so that was my first awareness of the movie, I guess. And to put the timing in perspective, yeah. where were you in your studies and your field at that time? I was a, a graduate student in philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. And I was, I was in my uh, first year, okay. first year there. Yeah. Cool. I think the next time I became aware of the movie was through coming across an article by a philosopher, Stephen Mulhall, who was at Oxford University. And he published an article with the title, uh, Picturing the Human Body and Soul, A Reading of Blade Runner. And the title caught my attention. And then I read the article and I thought, why haven't I seen this film? Why haven't I really looked into this? Because Mulhall, I think, demonstrated in the article that there were all these depths, all these layers to the film. There were things lurking beneath the surface that the casual viewer wouldn't notice. And I was really taken by that. And I actually got almost dizzy with excitement reading this article, thinking not just, here's a film I have to see, but also, what if the same idea could be applied to other films? 
what if there's other films that have a similar kind of depth? So then I really started looking at Blade Runner more seriously. I've tried to use it in my classes, but I have to be honest with you, it doesn't go over well with the students. It's too, it's too slow, it's too dark, right? and it's a little too existential. So I've had to use other films that are a little bit faster paced, maybe more exciting, but I still think it's the most philosophical film I've ever come across, and that's, re- that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised at all or disappointed, really, to hear that reaction from your students because that's essentially the reaction that it got in theaters. Right. And so, you know, I mean, granted, your students are trying to learn about philosophy, but, um, yeah, it, it's a movie that requires multiple viewings and that is mm-hmm. there's a lot more to it, which is funny because we've read interviews where essentially Ridley Scott's no pun intended, but philosophy on making movies was about making entertainment. So I think, you know, we'll get into this later. I have some questions for you about that, but I don't think he intended to make as deep a movie as Blade Runner turned out to be. Um, And so, yeah, it was kind of unexpected, I think. Well, hopefully we'll get to that later in the interview because that's one of the really interesting questions Mm -hmm. is what's the relationship between the author, including the director's intent, and the product that comes out? Totally. And that's a huge question. Mm -hmm. Um, cool. Yeah. Can you, uh, so that kind of answers the question. I think you also asked about how I came to write the book. Yeah. Uh, but before we get to the book, uh, I'm a little, I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper. Like, okay. Was it instant? Was it this instant? Like, whoa, this film's blowing me away. Was it right away? Was it a slow progress until you got to this point where like, I need to write about this. Yeah. I think, I think it was a slow burn. I think it was a slow burn. You know, the character of Roy Batty is the one that really engaged me the most. And I started thinking about his quest for more life. Mm-hmm. And the more I thought about that, the more other philosophical questions started coming up in my mind. And then it just kept expanding from there. So I'd say it was more like a slow burn than a sudden uh, revelation that I've got to work on this film or think about this film more. Um, but I have to say, I'm not tired of the film. Even, ever, mm-hmm. even after having seen it so many times and thought about it and read about it, it still has the same attraction for me now that it, that it has for years. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know we feel the same way every time uh, we see it. It's, uh, it's a, like a new viewing every time. And you yeah, notice different it's things. amazing. Yeah. It's, like a, it's like a diamond cave. You just find more and more and more <laughs> the, digger, the deeper you go into it. It feels that way to me. It also feels like an old friend. Yes. at this point. So even the scenes that are very, very familiar, I enjoy seeing them again just because uh, it's like meeting an old friend again. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, just like we've talked about sort of some of the hidden benefits of the version that most people, it's not their favorite, which is the original theatrical with the voiceover. Uh-huh. I think I, I, you know, I couldn't help but notice every time we talk about it that, but once you've seen that version a few times, you now have the benefit of some of the knowledge of the mm-hmm. voiceover without then having to view it with a voiceover anymore. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like, you, it's hard to throw away completely, right? Because you carry that with you. And then you can watch the final cut, which is the version most people agree is, you know, the final mm-hmm. best version of the film. But you have all these other details. Same with the work print and, and, and deleted scenes. You I know? was just going to say, especially the deleted scenes, mm-hmm. provide a lot of background information that helps you then understand the, the, the final cut. Better. Yeah, totally. Um, and even this is more for later when we connect to 2049. But, you know, I was having a conversation with Jamie and Patrick recently, and I'll, I'll share this with you because it may be something you haven't noticed or maybe you did. But, you know, uh, the scene in 2049 where Harrison Ford is introduced in the film, he uh, quotes Treasure Island, right, right when yep. he's meeting Kay. Yeah. 
Um, Mike, do you have a piece of cheese? Exactly. Right. A beautiful line. And, uh, you know, I was in an old bookstore recently and Treasure Island kind of popped out from where I was just sitting in front of the fire reading probably some philosophy. I was looking for some roomy, actually, some poetry. But um, and, you know, Treasure Island kind of popped out and I was like, oh, cool. Let me see if I can find. So, of course, I Googled it, found what chapter that quote. And I wanted to read the whole chapter and read the context, mm -hmm. you know, which people can look up. And it's, you know, somewhat relatable and interesting. But um, I was rewatching um, Dangerous Days, the documentary yeah. about the making of the first film. And uh, there's a deleted scene after Holden is shot and he's in the med pod, whatever. I, maybe you know where I'm going I, with I do. this, right? I do indeed. And, uh, but for the fans who may have not heard it, go look it up because it's a really cool moment where uh, Deckard walks in and kind of says, hey, buddy, how's it going? And Holden says, oh, you know, I'm doing all right. And he's reading. What you reading? What you reading? Old favorite. Treasure Island. Yeah. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> right. You knew that something that Hampton Fancher put in the screenplay uh, for the new film and that uh, or maybe that Villeneuve pushed for whatever, like, you know, those things aren't coincidences. So it's, that's right. It's interesting that that wasn't even in the original. It was in a deleted scene. And, you know, there's a number of things like that you find in earlier versions of the script mm -hmm. that have shown up in 2049. Of course. Uh, most famously, I think the opening scene of 2049, which was written for the original film and right, never used. The pot boiling on the stove. Right. And and in fact, uh, again, I would encourage, for one, anybody that hasn't watched Dangerous Days yet, it's one of the best making of documentaries. If not the best making ever of. Made. Mm -hmm. and it's three mm -hmm. and a half hours. It's very extensive. Um, and the, um, the storyboards of that original scene where Deckard is supposed to be at a farm, because originally it was Deckard as the Blade Runner, retiring a Blade Runner that's mm -hmm. at that farm. Mm -hmm. It's mesmerizing to see the storyboards, and they match so closely the, scene, right. the opening scene in 2049. And those are sketches by Ridley Scott, I believe, right? I think he's the one that sketched them out. Yeah. Right, I, Ridley Grahams. And I think he's, uh, even though he's not credited as one of the writers for 2049, I think he said in interviews that he wrote much of it. Right. Yeah. Certainly the, the pot boiling over, you can hear uh, Hampton Fancher credits him with that idea. He said, yeah, that was, that was all Ridley, you know, a so, gift, a gift from Ridley, a gift from Ridley. Well, you know, people used to talk about, especially the visual aspects of Blade Runner and how there was a lot of retrofitting. Mm -hmm. So the architecture has old things tacked onto new things and so mm -hmm. forth. There's something parallel going on with 2049. It's a retrofitting of some of the earlier ideas for Blade Runner that didn't get used that then get tacked on or added into 2049. Oh, that's cool. So that that's theme of retrofitting, I think, works both for the architecture in the original film and also for the story in 2049, at least in some small Even in dialogue, some, some of the dialogue was retrofitted. Kay asking um, Deckard, is the dog real? That's right. Mirroring Deckard asking Rachel if the owl is real. And whether Zora's snake is real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. There's another thing like that, too, which I don't know how many people have noticed, is that uh, in the original film, in Blade Runner, um, when Holden is giving the interview, the VK test to Leon, he says, you know, you, you, find, a, you find a tortoise, you know, crawling, you know, crawling in the desert and so forth. And Leon says, what's a tortoise? Right. Miller, mm -hmm. Right. It's like a turtle. Seen a turtle? Of course. Same thing. Right. And then Leon says, I've never seen a I've never seen a tortoise. In the new film in 2049, when Mariette is looking at the photograph of the dead tree mm -hmm. that Kay is holding, mm -hmm. you know, what's that? It's basically, it's a dead tree. I've never seen a tree. Hmm. Now, whether that was intentional or not, the I've never seen a fill in the blank, and the, right. what fills in the blank is a living thing. Coincidence or not, I don't know, but... 
Yeah, I, 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 I feel like I'm, I'm always hard pressed to find coincidences in these films. It just seems like they put so much effort into everything that almost mm-hmm. nothing is a coincidence to me. But yeah, mm-hmm. I love finding little tidbits like that. And every time you watch the movie again or a new version or you pause it, you know, look at a little bit right. closer, um, the more you find those things. Um, yeah, uh, before we get more into the movie, uh, on your background again, I kind of wanted to ask you sort of uh, about what led you to study philosophy and what what got you into your field? Uh, I I think it was television, honestly. Uh, When I was, let's see, I was probably um, 11 years old. There was a brand new television show on. It was called Kung Fu. (laughs) (laughs) I think the pilot aired in 1972. And, you know, you guys are presumably familiar with, with the show. Maybe some of your listeners aren't. But it involved this half Chinese, half American man, Kwai Chang Kane, who grew up in China as an orphan. He entered the Shaolin Temple and was trained as a Shaolin monk. And he had to flee China and go to the Old West. This is the late 1800s in the, in the US, in California. He's on the run and he's always getting into situations where he has to help people who are having difficulties. And sometimes he's in a, he's in a jam. And when these situations occur, you get these flashbacks where he's thinking back to his time in the Shaolin Temple. And invariably, there was some lesson he was given by one of the masters that could be adapted to the current situation. And of course, there was a lot of martial arts. So it's martial arts and philosophy. And that combination of the physical and the mental, for me as an 11-year-old, I was just blown away. I thought this was the greatest thing ever. So I started studying martial arts. And I tried studying philosophy, but... You know, when you're 12 years old, it's not very easy. Yeah. I picked up the Tao Te Ching, and <laughs> I read it over and over and over again, this classic of Chinese, of Taoism. I understood almost nothing. Right. Um, and then uh, I had to wait till I went to college to take a proper philosophy course, and then I really was hooked. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that resonates with me when you say sort of uh, flashbacks to old lessons that help you in present situations. And... Um, yeah, I'll share for a second. I mean, I've always been somewhat interested in philosophy, but um, I was going through, you know, kind of some personal issues uh, at home. And I was at the time I was on the subway. And uh, this is what recently got me kind of fired up about philosophy again. And um, I, I pulled up and saw a sign. Uh, you know, when the subway train stopped, there was an advertisement on the wall. And it said... Essentially, it started with no introduction. It just said, you know, relationships end and people die and you change jobs and things happen. And sort of the concept was, you know, we all struggle to deal with these things. Mm -hmm. But the study of philosophy is one thing that, you know, didn't say when you master it, but just if you if you get deep enough into it, it's something you can carry with you. And it can be a tool to help you in your life in all kinds of situations. And it, it just resonated with me and made so much sense. And I was like, yeah, that that's kind of why I want to get into philosophy because it's this connection. A lot of it, the classical stuff at least is a connection to people that lived two, 3000 years ago, but they were still human. They Mm -hmm. still, we still Mm -hmm. have this connection with them. Mm -hmm. And so there's all these things we can learn, especially back then when somebody of means who lived into his seventies spent his entire life kind of just thinking about life. You know, that, that was kind of my connection to it. The, the, The basic problems facing human beings don't really change. Right. Right. One of, my, one of my instructors in graduate school described philosophy this way. He said it's, it's shedding uh, new light 
on old problems and old light on new problems. Hmm, that's and I really like that formulation, the kind of forward and backward. Yeah. I mean, a lot of philosophy is very obviously very abstract, very theoretical, and it's easy to get lost in the maze, in the labyrinth of doing philosophy. It becomes a kind of game at some point. But originally, it was the love of wisdom. That's where the word philosophy comes from, literally the love of wisdom. And I think that's still a conception of philosophy which it's possible to embrace. As long as you keep your kind of eye on what the ultimate goal is, it should have a relationship to life and helping us to understand life and, and navigate the problems we face with a certain amount of uh, intelligence. Right. And, and, and basically, sh basically taking advantage of things that other people have thought of before us right. who faced similar situations. So that's more or less how I think about it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, speaking of those more general concepts, you know, we've all read a little bit about uh, Philip Dick and kind of what, what he thought about in his writings. And, you know, of course, when you read his books and know a little bit of his history and the fact that, you know, he was often on amphetamines and other drugs. So, you know, he, right. some of his writings get really crazy and sort of, uh, sort of nightmarish or, or ethereal and it can be difficult to follow. Um, but, you know, through interviews, you can kind of get a glimpse of what he wanted to figure out and what he was interested in. And so, um, I wrote down a couple of questions actually that, uh, you reference in your book about sort of what is reality, what constitutes an authentic human being, which of course are issues that come up in um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the novel that Blade Runner is based on. Um, you know, obviously we don't have time to explore every single aspect of philosophy, but I just wanted to ask you what philosophies that you've studied do you feel kind of uh, address those two particular questions um, and, you know, which ones are more interesting to you, especially for our listeners who maybe want to read further into philosophy? Right. Well, you know, the question, what is reality? I think every philosophy is dealing with that at, at some level. Uh, it's really the question of what's true and how can we know what's true? I have colleagues who um, really, you know, seriously follow particular philosophers. So they might follow Plato, they might follow Aristotle, they might follow Kant as a source of insights and ideas about how to think about those questions, what's real, what's true, and so forth. I've always wanted to have a philosopher I could glom onto like that and follow, but I haven't found one. I tend to be a little bit more promiscuous, I think, in that any, any philosopher who's offering ideas I think I can use, I try to take advantage of those, those like ideas that. rather than following one philosopher uh, in particular. The, the issue about what constitutes an authentic human being, there I think I can be a little bit more specific. I would say the existentialists were the, most, were the philosophers most concerned about authenticity and what that means and why it might be, why it might be a value. It's not so much a question of what's real or unreal. It's a matter of um, how can you be most truly yourself and most transparent and um, not putting on a facade or being fake mm -hmm. in some way. And that distinction between the, the authentic and the fake, of course, turns up again and again in both of the Blade Runner movies. Right. Um, yeah, very interesting. You know, my next three questions are kind of a similar topic that we touched on. So let me just um, go through them as a whole. But I think that you've probably already thought about this a little bit. And it kind of has to do with, again, the intent of an artist or a filmmaker when they're uh, doing their work and then how it works out sort of uh, in reality and, and how the crowd, the public uh, and the people observing the art sort of absorb it mm -hmm. and then then they continue to write about it as you have and as, as we all kind of interpret art. And so, um, 
you know, there, there are things like in the epilogue of your book, it talks about how some philosophers don't think that a film, modern philosophers, obviously, because film is a more modern medium, don't think that film can be a genuine work of philosophy. You know, I think me and Jamie and Patrick certainly disagree with that. I think you do as well. I'd like to expound on that. Um, and then on a related note, you know, there are interviews that are in Salmon's book and everyone can look up that talk about how both really Scott and Rutger Hauer, among others, you know, view movies as purely entertainment. And I think it's very obvious to anyone that listens to this podcast that quite the opposite is true for us. Um, you know, for me, the movies that impact me the most are the ones that transcend their two hours on, or however long they are on screen and make me think and have conversations with people and want to watch them again and kind of pull them apart and see what deeper meanings are there. Mm -hmm. uh, as you've already mentioned, Blade Runner is the quintessential example of this. Um, so yeah, kind of maybe expound a little bit on that and maybe uh, you talked about how you had to use some other films in your class because Blade Runner is a little too too mm -hmm. slow or whatever. So yeah, maybe some examples of other films that do that for you and kind of what what your opinion is on that. Okay, that's great. There's a whole lot there. Hopefully you'll remind me um, sure, sure. of some of those questions as we, as we go along. Um, you know, Ridley Scott, as you know, has said a number of times that he didn't want to make an esoteric film. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to make a philosophical film. He wanted to make entertainment. Um, so I have no doubt at all that was his intention. And I think, it's, I think it's important to respect the stated intentions of the author, of the artist. It seems you know, kind of disrespectful not to do that. But I'm not sure that really entails that we have to be satisfied with it and that we have to rest, rest with that. Because I, I'm still thinking this through. So I, have not, I do not have a well-worked-out theory sure, of this. No, no. I'm, I'm working on this. Actually, this is one of my projects right now is trying to figure out how to think about this. In, a, in a, an intelligent way. But I tend to think about films along the lines of the way that I think about music. Um, that sometimes I think, I've heard interviews with musicians and the interviewer is asking them, wow, you know, this, this song has been so meaningful in my life and I'm sure it's been meaningful in the lives of other people as well. How did you come up with these lyrics and what did it mean to you? And the musician says, uh, the words rhymed. <laughs> I'm thinking of Justin Hayward, who was a songwriter for the Moody Blues okay. back in the 60s and 70s. No, no, no. Th 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 it's so meaningful. How did you come up with this? And he said, no, nah, the words just fit with the, with the music I wrote. And that's it. That's right. all there is to it. Right? Um, Paul McCartney was interviewed many, many years ago on a radio show. And the interviewer asked him, you know, this line in Hey Jude, the, the, the movement you need is on your shoulder. What does that mean? And my recollection serves me, what Sir Paul said was, I got to that point in the song, I needed something with a certain number of syllables, and I put that in. And when I played it for John Lennon, I said, don't worry, I'll fix this later. And John Lennon said, no, it's perfect, leave it. <laughs> so there it is, forever and ever and ever in the song. And I'm sure people that are, you know, Beatle, Beatle fans have tried to analyze what does that mean. So what I, what I think, though, is that there can be meanings in works of art, movies and songs and so forth that weren't necessarily intended by the artist, but are there nonetheless. Why do I say this? Because I'm not sure that the artist is the only one who can derive meaning from what they've created. I think there could be many different meanings to a work of art, whether it's a film or a piece of music. And meaning, I think by its very nature is relational. It's not just what's there in the work, it's also what the person brings to the work, whether they're listening to it or viewing it or both. And that means, I think that means there can be many different meanings 
for the very same work of art and different people can have different meanings that they attribute to it. Now, again, I still want to think this through and make sure I'm not, this isn't incoherent sure. mm -hmm. in some way. Maybe what I just said is incoherent, it's not, it's not. but I, something along those lines is, is what I tend to think about this. So back to Blade Runner, Ridley Scott says, it's not a philosophical film. I didn't intend to make an esoteric film. I have a hard time concluding that it's not a philosophical film. <laughs> it's, I, think it's, I think it's there whether he intended it to be or not. I'm not, again, I'm, it feels arrogant for me to say this since I've never set foot on a movie set. Mm -hmm. But I'm gonna say it anyways. It seems to me that the, 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 um, the creative activity of an artist maybe isn't always perfectly transparent to him or her. That there might be more they're bringing to their work than even they are aware of. And I think this is the human condition. We're not perfectly transparent to ourselves. We're partially transparent to ourselves. And every time we learn something new about ourselves and peel back a layer, to me, that's evidence that we weren't perfectly transparent to ourselves. We can't see ourselves just exactly as we are, but we're discovering ourselves along the way. I'll say one more thing uh, about this. You know, I, I'm guessing many people have had the experience I've had, which is other people can know things about me better than I can know myself. Or I might know something about another person better than they know. Think about somebody who swears they can quit smoking. They're absolutely convinced they can quit smoking anytime they decide to do it. And yet we know they can't because we've seen them try and fail over and over again. And likewise, people can know things about us that we're not aware of. So by parallel, it seems to be possible that someone like Ridley Scott can create a film which is deeply philosophical not necessarily intending to do so, but it came through him, as it were. Those philosophical ideas came through him, and they manifested themselves in the film. Yeah, like a really positive, unintended consequence. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah, and I think uh, I, of the two of us, between me and Jamie, he's certainly the artist between the two of us in terms of, you know, poetry, and, uh, you know, he does a lot of work with his hands as well, building things, and um, so step in at any time to give an artist perspective on this. No, I, I just think that, well, when we're talking about 2019, if I think about what happened in Ridley Scott's life, his family life, his brother passed away. So I think he's out of, out of his control. He's bringing whatever he's dealing with into the decisions that he's making. I just think, mm -hmm. I just think when we're telling the story about of people or pseudo people, when you're telling stories like that, it, things are going to happen beyond your control. Mm -hmm. And so maybe his intent wasn't to make an esoteric film, but when you're telling, trying to make a, a film about people and real people as opposed to fake people and all of those things, those questions are going to beg themselves anyways. Right. You can't, you can't, you can't um, get away from it. That's, that's... And let's not forget, Blade Runner is a very loose adaptation of a novel by Philip K. Dick. Mm -hmm. And uh, Philip K. Dick certainly wasn't averse to raising philosophical issues in his, in his writing. So if you're building a film on the foundation laid by Philip K. Dick, I think it's inevitably going to have some philosophical ideas in it because it's there in the source. Mm -hmm. It's there mm -hmm. in the foundation. Right. That, yeah, that's a really good point. Not to mention, obviously, Hampton Fancher, how he might feel about philosophy and what he was writing, you know? That's right. I mean, again, I don't know exactly how this works, but um, if the analogy between pieces of music, uh, I'm thinking like rock music, this mm -hmm. kind of thing, mm -hmm. and films is anywhere near the mark, 
very often the person who is, uh, you know, associated with a, with a piece of music is really just one, one element in a much larger process involving many, many people. Right. You read the liner notes and you find out the enormous number of people who contributed to the creation of a, a three-minute song, mm-hmm. even though the artist is the one everybody associates with that song. Likewise, I am absolutely sure that Blade Runner is Ridley Scott's vision and that he gets the lion's share of the credit, but there's also writers like right. Hampton Fancher who, yeah. you know, they, they, they wrote it. Right. And yeah, and of course, probably none of it would exist, or at least it wouldn't look anything like what it does without the inspiration of the original novel and Philip Dick. I mean, that was his famous comment on seeing those sort of 10 minutes of test shot that Philip Dick got to see before he died. Unfortunately, as we all know, he didn't get to see the whole movie, but you know, his comment essentially, and I'm paraphrasing was, how did you do this? You, how did you get into my head and create That's exactly right. what I had imagined, you know, which yeah. is unbelievable. And it just yeah. goes to show how connected everyone was throughout the strife. And we all have read and know how difficult the process making that mm-hmm. first movie was. Um, yeah. You know, and, and your comments, I, I love the music analogy. And I think from an artist's perspective, I think there, yeah, there are several things going on, even aside from the fact that on a movie you have hundreds of people working on it literally. Mm-hmm. But even if you break it down to, um, saying, you know, Michelangelo working on the David where it's really one master and one piece of marble and, you know, him sculpting, but there's the connection between him and his conscious and subconscious, right? The piece of art is something that's coming through him and it's a matter Mm -hmm. of the artist connecting to himself. Um, Then there's what he's putting in the medium and it's a work that means something to that, to him or her, to that artist, but then you're also sharing it with the public, whether you're selling it or whether it's in a museum, you're trying to convey something about yourself, right? To mm-hmm. other people and other people also get their own interpretation. This happens with music, with art, sculpture, mm-hmm. whatever it is with film, not to mention eventually you're going to die. And so will your entire generation. But certainly if it's made of marble, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. that thing is going to live on forever pretty much, or this movie will most likely live on forever. It's preserved in many different places. Mm -hmm. And so generations later we'll get to observe this, which is an interesting thing about the medium of film, right? Because we have books that are thousands of years old that have survived the ages. And so you can literally see what someone thought 2000 years ago, how different people have interpreted that over the years. We don't get that, uh, sort of, uh, long-term forward thinking with movies because we can only go back a little bit over a hundred years. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see for further generations, what this movie means, whether it is forgotten, which I highly doubt. Um, but you know, I think it does require analyzation like this to get people interested in it because inevitably people are going to hear it or find out about it that have never seen it before. Mm -hmm. And, and a thousand years from now, when people are replaying this podcast, (laughs) <laughs> they'll say, wait, they're talking about something called Blade Runner. What is that? And they'll go look it up and they'll find out about it. <laughs> Thanks to this podcast. I, well, I'm glad you said it. I, I don't want to flatter ourselves too much. But uh, yeah, that would be an interesting thought experiment, certainly. When our, our great, great, great grandchildren are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're doing this. You mentioned, uh, you asked about other films as well. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, what I often do in my classes, I use films to get discussions started about various philosophical issues. And, you know, it used to be the case that I could show a film like The Matrix and almost all the students will have seen it. Well, now that's, that film came out in 1999. My students. Oh, man. I, say, I always ask the first question. How many of you had seen this film before watching it for this class? 
usually no hands go up. No. No, yeah, no, no, not any. And these are mostly undergrad students? They're undergrads. Okay. Used, yeah, yeah. So films that used to be very familiar to my students as the years pass, you know, of course, I get older, but they always stay the same age. Right. Uh, you know, it's great, though, because they get to, they've never heard of these films. And they get to see them and think about them for the first time. So when we think about, you know, what is reality? We look at The Matrix. We look at Vanilla Sky. We look at Inception. They've, they've usually seen Inception. Right. That's 2010. So it's right, recent not enough. Uh, we look at questions about truth. Um, we look at uh, questions about free will and fate. And for that, I use Minority Report, Tom Cruise film. Which is another Dick Philip Dick book. Yeah. That's that's it. exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> Tree of Life is another great film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A Terrence Malick yeah. film. We look at um, Twelve Monkeys. Mm, that's a it was great a one. Bruce Willis and uh, Brad Pitt movie, which I think mm -hmm. is underrated. Very underrated. It's yeah. a great time travel movie, but also about you know how can you change things and to what degree can you change things. Um, we look at uh, Ex Machina. Mm. Oh yeah. Ex Machina for issues of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of films that are great for raising philosophical issues. And again, I don't know to what extent the directors or creators intended them to be philosophical films, but they certainly are. This goes back to the question you raised at the beginning about you know, whether films can be philosophy or do philosophy. So I'd, I'd look at it this way. You know, there, the philosophical opinion about this really is split. I mean, some philosophers think, yeah, films can be philosophy or do philosophy. Others think they can't. And the difference has... You know, the disagreement has really nothing to do, as far as I can tell, about, oh, well, you know, philosophy has to be done by academic philosophers in universities. That's not really where the, 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 the line is drawn. I think the line is typically drawn in the following way. If you think of philosophy as trying to, art, philosophers are trying to argue for positions and driving toward conclusions, then the question becomes, can films do that? Can films present an argument? Can they drive toward conclusions? Now, if you think that arguments necessarily have to be linguistic in form, like here's a premise, here's a premise, here's a conclusion, unless it's a really badly made film, it's not going to be doing that. So a film of a philosopher giving an argument on, on film wouldn't be an example of a philosophical movie. But if you have a sort of more liberal idea of what philosophy involves as the love of wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom, as, as stimulating others to think deeply about issues which probably do matter to them, but they've never given them sustained, careful thought. In that broader sense of philosophy, it seems that f films can do that because some films do have that effect on their audiences. For all I know, some films are even intended to do that for their audiences. So yeah. I, I tend to incline toward that second, more liberal view. And well, why not? Why, why not have a broader view of what philosophy is? Why take that narrow? Yeah, if there's anyone else to tell you that you're not allowed to have that view, that would be, you know, antithetical to the concept of wisdom and knowledge and philosophy, I think. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I think you're right. Even if you want to look at it as saying um, most philosophers don't think that a film, that medium can be directly philosophical, if it inspires philosophical thought indirectly, kind of the way Blade Runner does, um, especially based on the artist's original intent, then... Who's, you know, does it matter whether it's direct or indirect? In the end, here we are mm -hmm. talking about philosophy and all connecting over a movie that we all love that has certainly made us think about mm -hmm. life and these important questions. So, Yeah, and that, something like that is what I had in mind when I started this book. I really had an idea of the book doing two things. One was, well, first of all, 
for me, when I write something, it's like scratching an itch. Um, you know, Leon says at one point, there's nothing worse than having an itch you can never scratch. Well, I'm not sure there's nothing worse than that. But, <laughs> but you know, when you have an itch, you want to scratch it. And so one of my goals in writing this was thinking, there's all of these philosophical issues that I see arising in the film. And wouldn't it be great if I could somehow unpack some of those philosophical ideas? And how do I do that? Well, I can bring some philosophical resources to bear on elements of the film. So bring philosophy into my understanding of the film and see to what extent I can, for myself at least, understand the film better by using these philosophical resources. And then the other thing I had in mind, the arrow going in the opposite direction was, well, there are these philosophical issues which I'm already interested in. Maybe the film can be a resource for me to think about these issues that I'm already thinking about. So maybe philosophy can help illuminate parts of the film that might, other, might not otherwise be um, illuminated. And then in the opposite direction, maybe thinking about the film can help me understand the philosophical issues. To what degree I succeeded, I don't know, but um, for me it helped to scratch an itch I had. Sure, yeah. I mean, I can tell you from my perspective that I tend to get a little lost and bored with things that are too dense. We were talking about sort of the original writers and how, you know, directly trying to read Plato, which I'm sure you've done a lot of. It's, it's tough going. It's, it's tough going, you know, and so these more modern analyses by, you know, experts, so to speak, uh, of those original works are a lot easier to read and easier to understand. And yet, so my experience with your book, for example, was that while I had to reread certain parts because there were concepts that I wasn't familiar with, it certainly, uh, A, helped me break down the movie in ways that I hadn't done before to sort of a granular level, especially the dialogue. Um, you know, you break down the dialogue um, you know, as an example, I can talk about being good and sort of uh, conversations that Roy and Deckard, Roy Batty and Deckard are having in the third act of the first movie where mm -hmm. there's a chase scene where he's saying, you know, I thought you were the good man. And I thought you were good. Aren't you the good man? Aren't you the man? good man? There you go. Yeah, you can quote a Even lot Even the way that Roy, in, you know, puts the emphasis on certain words, mm -hmm. I think is And it's great, you know, in written form, it's really cool to see how you can italicize some of it and then break it down and um, really relate it to different philosophers that have really written a lot about these subjects. And so it helped me break down and think more deeply about the movie while also getting me very interested in learning more about the philosophy that you describe and the philosophers that you talk about. So you know, uh, to me, it seems like the, the book is definitely uh, achieving the goals that you wanted to achieve. So I, I would highly recommend it to anyone that's interested in, in, in either topic, because I, I think it serves both well, uh, very well. Thank you for the plug. Um, yeah, totally. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll leave liner notes in the uh, episode so that, you know, uh, people can um, look up your book. And if they want to purchase it, we, we, you know, we got a discount earlier from the publisher um, for plugging it. Maybe we'll be able to get a second one. We'll see. But um yeah, and, and um, yeah, we're, we're at, and uh, we'll we'll plug your article uh, from when twenty forty nine came out, where you talk a little bit about twenty forty nine, and we'll get into that in a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. um, I did have one. I, I think it's the only super specific question I had about the first movie, but um, yeah, I'll just I'll read this because it's interesting. Uh, and you were the first person really to bring up this point, and this is not a super huge philosophical point. It's a little more specific, but. Um, 
in the second chapter in your book, uh, which is about being human, you introduce Rachel and talk about her as Tyrell's niece. Uh, this is an interesting take and a detail I never considered because, you know, most people refer to her uh, having Tyrell's niece's memories, right. but not necessarily being Tyrell's niece. And the way you write about it, it's kind of understood. And again, like I personally always felt that Rachel thought she was an employee and that her memories they implanted in her were Tyrell's nieces, but not necessarily that she was made to believe that she was Tyrell's niece working at the company. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, we don't know the extent of all her implanted memories. She certainly could have some that, have you know her at a birthday party when she was eight and Tyrell being there there as her mom's brother or whatever um and so that would back up the theory that she was actually convinced that that's who she was mm -hmm. um you also bring up the idea that Rachel may be a clone of Rachel Tyrell meaning uh Tyrell's actual niece mm -hmm. uh, which is an interesting concept because we talk about cloning and creating Rachel 2.0 in, in 2049 um after Rachel's white comp test when she meets Deckard at his apartment you remember the spider that lived in a bush outside your window? Orange body, green legs. Watched her build a web all summer. Then one day there's a big egg in it. The egg hatched. The egg hatched? Yeah. And a hundred baby spiders came out. And they ate her. Implants. Those aren't your memories. They're somebody else's. They're Tyrell's nieces. So to me, this sounds like Deckard exposing the source of Rachel's memories to her for the first time. And you can see the shock on her face. And as she tries to argue her way kind of out of that concept, uh, I guess it could go either way. But uh, one interesting thing that came up to me uh, was, does it make a difference for Rachel and for the plot overall if she just thinks she's not human as opposed to thinking she's no longer a specific human in this case you know Tyrell's niece someone of considerable status who is the probably one of the heirs or at least related to this gigantic company etc mm -hmm. um, yeah I'd never thought about that until you brought it up these are great questions and now you're forcing me to think about them again <laughs> and, and re rethink reconsider them uh, here's the here's a general point you know the film necessarily cannot give us all the details we might want. Mm -hmm. So there's just lots of spaces left. We can either glide over those spaces and say, oh, I don't know, let's keep going. Let's keep, right, let's right. keep enjoying the film or thinking about it. Or we can take time and say, you know, the, the, the film doesn't address this. And of course it can't address it. But what if we did? What if we thought more deeply about what belongs in that space? And we just see what the possibilities are and what the options are. So we're talking about Rachel's memories. She has implanted memories and she eventually comes to know that. Now, it seems like there's, logically speaking, there's two possibilities. One possibility would be that Terrell gave Rachel some of his niece's memories, but not all of them. The other possibility, of course, is that he gave her all of her nieces, all of his niece's memories up to that point in his niece's life which practically speaking would probably depend on the method in which they do that meaning that if it's just a transfer of a person's entire brain or memories mm -hmm. then it would be a hundred percent right it's selective then it depends on how many you're choosing that sounds exactly right and again we have no idea and the film gives us no clues whatsoever about the process by which this is supposed to take place we're supposed to believe this is possible and so forth now um 
again, and this is just you know pure speculation. If memories are encoded in neuronal connections, uh, is it going to be easier to just copy the whole the whole shebang, or to somehow pick out which memories to transfer? But memories are presumably distributed across an entire brain. They're not localized in this part, little part, and that little part. So if we think, well, it's going to be the easier route. It's going to be copying the whole thing. Then, on that supposition. Rachel gets all of Terrell's niece's memories up to that point in the niece's life. And again, we don't even know how long she lived, whether she's still around. We, have no, no, we know nothing about this. Okay, suppose that's the case then. If Rachel acquired all of Terrell's, Terrell's niece's memories, wouldn't some of them be memories of who she is and how she's related to Terrell? Presumably, and this is why I thought maybe there's a connection between Terrell's niece and Rachel. If Rachel thinks her name is Rachel and Rachel has Terrell's niece's memories, arguably Terrell's niece was named Rachel as well. It, well, think about the, the opposite. It'd be weird if her name was Bertha right? and Rachel's got her memories, yet Rachel thinks her name is Rachel. Okay. One more leap of the imagination. Suppose that um, Tyrell's niece would know what she looks like. Tyrell's niece would know what she looks like if she's ever looked in a mirror. Now, if Rachel looked radically different from Tyrell's niece, she might wonder, how come I remember myself having blonde hair or being a redhead or having loads of freckles, and yet I have dark hair and no freckles. So there's a really, I'll, I'll grant you, really extremely tenuous argument or line of reasoning to say, well, if Tyrell wanted to copy his niece's memories into a replicant, the substrate for doing that would have to be suitable for that. And what better substrate than a replicant made from a cell or cells of his niece? Now, this... I want to say this could all be false, but that raises a much bigger question about what does it mean to say it's false or true since we have no facts about this. There's right. nothing in the film that addresses these issues. And we know this film, rightfully so, and part of what we love about it is the ambiguity, right? Yeah. I mean, even the construction of replicants is never really made clear throughout both movies. You're given little things here and there, like choose iLab. Okay, so they're actually making eyeballs, which would make you think that replicants are assembled right as opposed right. to grown in a petri dish and you know and, and plus they're full-grown adults when they're born or when they're put out of the assembly line or whatever and they're so, produced as adults another thing related to that is somehow they have to have or, or acquire very quickly a large amount of a large amount of skill and knowledge that it takes ordinary human beings a long time to acquire so how do they acquire the knowledge and skills to function as replicants, even though they haven't been around very long. You know, again, more speculation. The question's often raised whether the other replicants besides Rachel have implanted memories. Now, it's ambiguous. It's ambiguous whether they do or don't. But I, I feel like, I, I mean, I seem to remember that Rachel being an experiment, and then, you know, we find out later she's a Nexus 7 in the second movie, which yeah. makes sense, I think, that supposition, even though they may have not have written that during the original movie even in the world building of it it does make sense 
either way, she was different from other Nexus six models. Tyrell kind of makes that clear. So I've always presupposed that no, they did not um, have implanted memories, which explained part of um, Rutger Hauer's performance um, and Daryl Hannah's performance in terms of emotionally, they're really hard to gauge. Sometimes they go Mm -hmm. from sort of angry to sad, to laughing to, you know what I mean? Like they seem very volatile emotionally, Mm -hmm. uh, which was childlike. Yeah. Very childlike, which is a great touch by the actors. That, that sounds right. And when Roy uh, says to Jeff Sebastian, gosh, you've got a lot of great toys in here. Yeah. Yeah. He's like a eight-year-old because yeah. he's he's supposedly just under four years just old in four. terms of life experience. So he's yeah. an adult. Yeah. But the fact that I would argue the fact that he doesn't have memories because that was the whole point, right? No, I think yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Then that raises the question: How did they acquire the kind of knowledge and skills that they have in such a short period of time? Right. I don't know what the answer. How that are is. they? Yeah. How are they programmed? Essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's uh really fascinating so i mean i didn't mean in the book to to suggest that rachel was terrell's niece but there might be an intimate connection between them they have they have a memory connection right because rachel has inherited the niece's memories maybe there's a physical connection as well yeah no my my supposition wasn't that they were the same exact person but that rachel believed that she was tyrell's niece as opposed to being some other person named rachel who had some of these memories because like you say i think the simplest answer might be the correct one here not that there's only one correct answer but meaning Mm -hmm. even if let's say the way um a different child actor can play the same character than an adult actor will play in the same movie Mm -hmm. and you can sort of um discount physical differences because you're like oh yeah people grow up and look different Mm -hmm. you know and and that Mm -hmm. happens sometimes so you Mm -hmm. can discount that but it would be strange for rachel to only have three or four memories of her as a child and have no memories as an adult or as a young adult and so inevitably if you were trying to make her believe that she was a human it would kind of I think it pushes in the direction that she would have all of mm-hmm. the original person's memories. That does it, make sense. Yeah, and I think this is a nice segue into another question you asked. Uh, see if I can remember what it was uh, correctly. You know, Rachel is, of course, shocked to find out that she's a replicant. And that would be shocking. But I tend to think, and this might be counterintuitive to some, I tend to think it would be a bigger shock. It'd be harder to come to grips with the idea that she's not who she thinks she is. Mm-hmm. Now, I think intuitively might say, well, finding out that you're not even what you thought you were has got to be a bigger shock mm-hmm. than finding out that you're not who you were, who right. you thought you were. But I think about it in my own case. Suppose, I mean, suppose hypothetically I found out that I was created in a laboratory through some kind of genetic engineering you know, breakthrough. Okay, I'd be shocked. I'd be really shocked. I think I'd find it fascinating. If I was the only one, I'd feel really special. Uh, you know, I'd want to go on talk shows and things like this. But, and that would be shocking. But if I found out that I've only existed for a year and that what I said earlier about how I first got interested in philosophy, right. how I first encountered the film Blade Runner, film, I mean, all the rest of everything I think I remember, if I learned that none of that are things that I actually experienced. Maybe somebody else experienced those things, or maybe a number of other people experienced those things and they were put together and implanted. That would be far more shocking to me than finding out that I'm um, a biogenetic 
creation. As shocking as that would as shocking as that would be, because because more things that I take for granted would be called into question, and undermined, really undermined. So you know, Rachel's got both. Mm-hmm. She's finding out that she's not what she thought she was, and she's also finding out she's not who she thought she was. So she's got the double whammy. And she's finding out that she's essentially the lowest, uh, the lowest class. Not even she shouldn't even be on in the on the planet. She knows that she's going to be hunted. Like she realizes, I'm not safe here. Yeah. So it's not just that, like, oh, you're not who you think you are. But you know, you can go on and go living, and you know. Right now, it's, her, her life's in danger yeah, on it's, top of it. Now you're being hunted. So there's it's almost like a triple negative mm-hmm. for her. So she's scared for her life too, and she doesn't know how long she has to live either. Right, right. I mean, her her questions to Deckard, "You're a policeman, right? You saw my files, incept dates, things like that." She wants to know right. how much time has she got left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's it's funny. I, this is another little tidbit that you mentioned in your book that I'd never even noticed, and based on what Ridley Scott has said, I'm guessing this might be a coincidence. But, um, you know, of course, Kajito uh, Sum, I think, therefore I am, was uh, one of Descartes' most famous phrases, right? Sure, yeah. And, of course, Descartes and Deckard are yeah. really, really close in pronunciation, which right. is just funny to think about. Um, yeah. I, I, and and that, of course, that, of course, goes all the way back to Philip K. Dick. Right. Since it's Deckard yeah. in, in the novel. Right. Yeah. True. And yeah. And, 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 and I would, I'd be more inclined to believe that Philip Dick did that intentionally as opposed to anybody else, which of course it's true because he came up with the name. That's a great point. Um, yeah, this question kind of goes along the lines of what we were just talking about, about, um, so the plight of these replicants seems to mirror the plight of us, of, of humans in our own search for meaning. After all, we have a, finite lifespan of unknown length um, and our memories are a construct of our minds that are ever changing and can even be erased in certain circumstances right I mean that's Mm -hmm. you know I'd like to think that all my memories are something I can hang on to but we all know if you get dementia or Alzheimer's bad enough you can forget who you are forget who your loved ones are so not even that is guaranteed to us for as long as we're alive our reality seems really no more real than any replicants Uh, philosophically outside of the nature of our creation um how are we really different from a Nexus 7 replicant? M- meaning that we're biological, we're human, and we have memories. But beyond that, it seems difficult to discern the difference. It seems very difficult. And I, I think it's a, almost a truism in some ways that the film is trying to impress that upon the audience over and over again. That even though in that context in the film, there's supposed to be these great differences between the replicants, whether they're Nexus 6s or 7s, and human beings, the differences are inconsequential. They're, they're not essential differences. Um, it doesn't mean the replicants are humans, because it depends on how you define a human being, but they certainly seem like persons. And, um, you know, they're self-aware, they're conscious, they have their own goals, their own aims, and so forth. Uh, they want to live, they're aware of their mortality. They have all the characteristics we associate with personhood, even if they may not be human beings. So I think the film is, you know, driving home again and again and again, whatever differences there are, are inconsequential. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not essential differences between us and, and them. But I wonder if in that 
same pattern of thinking or ideas. I wonder if the idea where you have people like us who are born from an act of love, where our parents got together and they made love and they made us, whereas then you have these things that are manufactured um, and they're, from what we can tell, certainly from 2049, when they're when they're made, they're full grown. They're not, they're not grown in a womb, uh, in a mother's womb, uh, and all of that energy that a mother's womb gives them, and all of that, um, everything that she's passing emotionally, everything to them. So you have these things that are just there. They're just made. And I mm-hmm. wonder if, and that idea really puts them in a different category. And I, and I'm not. And this is kind of a, it's supposition. I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't make them really something different when you're not made from parents. You don't have parents. You're essentially grown in a 3D, by a 3D computer. Um, what, what does that really, how does that set them apart from people who are born of love? They, they are created differently as far as we can, we can tell. Um, somebody who wanted to challenge that as being significant, I suppose, could, could argue along the following lines. To some degree, um, individuals that we consider to be human beings also come into the world in different ways. Some are born because their parents fell in love and through an act of love, they were born. Others come into the world because they're accidents, literally speaking, they're accidents, they weren't intended, and yet they're still here. Uh, Some people come in through the normal birth process, some come into existence through C-sections. Some are the result of in vitro fertilization. Some are the result of having a surrogate uh, surrogate mother and so forth. There's lots of different ways in which human beings come into existence. Mm-hmm. And yet uh, it doesn't seem that we want to draw any distinctions between, well, this person is less or more because they came into existence in this way versus they came into existence in that way. If you follow that line of thinking out, you could think of the replicants as simply one more way in which humans or human-like beings come into existence. It's a way which doesn't exist right now, but it's one which conceivably could exist at some point in the future. And you might think what matters is what they are, not how they got there. And um, I, will, I will refrain from commenting on our current social situations having to do with <laughs> immigration issues about you know, how, you know, what you are versus how you got there. Right. And, and what you, I think the next question is what you choose to do with your life, right? That mm-hmm. was in your book, you kind of mentioned the difference between, uh, you know, objects and persons in the sense that an object, although it can be used for different uh, things, you know, a paper cutter is essentially it's, its essence is, is predetermined when it's created. Mm-hmm. Whereas humans, regardless of their method of creation, their, um, their essence is not predetermined. You, to a certain extent, you have arguably, right, some freedom of will of what to do with your life and how to live your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in that, in that part of the book, I was responding to some ideas of uh, the French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre, who said, you know, if there's a God, then uh, we are created, we're artifacts, and we serve a predetermined purpose in that case. And I kind of want to challenge um, Sartre on some of, the, some of those ways. Even if the replicants are made, how, I want to suggest how they're made doesn't necessarily determine their, their essence. And, you know, Sartre's idea was that he said the essence of, or sorry, the, the, the fundamental idea of existentialism is that existence precedes essence. We show up first, 
and then we create mm-hmm. our own essence. We decide what we're going to be. And that idea, I think you can find exemplified to some extent in both of the Blade Runner movies. Deckard starts out as a pretty cold killer. Um, in the theatrical version, he narrates, my wife you know, used to call me sushi, cold fish. Right. You know, and over the course of the film, he starts taking a more humane view of the replicants and realizes the differences between them and him aren't, aren't quite so great. He's making choices all along the way, and those choices are important for who he is and what he is. And once we get to talking about 2049, it's even more obvious in the case of Officer K that his choices are helping to shape and form what he is as he goes along. Yeah, um, real quick, we'll take a break in just a second, but um, just because it relates directly to what you're talking about, um, I want to talk for a second about sort of Deckard and Batty and and this concept that's been brought up before, you can look it up, you know, in terms of um, Deckard being the protagonist, the story is told kind of from his perspective, or at least he's the main character, but he's kind of a shitty character. He's kind of, you know, he's an alcoholic. You know, we've talked about it in other episodes and it's mm-hmm. very obvious that he's not really the greatest guy. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Roy Batty, who plays the antagonist, is in a lot of ways a lot more relatable. Um, you can kind of sympathize, empathize with him a lot more in terms of his plight and how you can relate to him and say, yeah, I think I would feel exactly how Batty feels if I were him. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's an interesting, it's an interesting stance. Uh, and, you know, also, I kind of, this is one question specifically I wanted to ask you because I, my small brain couldn't wrap around this, but um, when he kills Tyrell, which, you know, was his god and creator, essentially, um, what, does, what do you think that mm-hmm. means for Batty? And is this what played a part in his ability to empathize with Deckard at the end, where he makes the famous move to uh, very actively choose to save his life where all he had to do was just step aside and mm-hmm. do nothing and Deckard would have died. And, you know, mm-hmm. we, all, we all know how the movie ends. Mm-hmm. Wow. There's a, there's a lot there, a lot there on those questions. Let me go back to the the beginning of what you said. You know, it, it, is one of them the good guy and one of them the bad guy? I tend to think about those old Westerns from the 1940s and 1950s where the good guy and the bad guy were clearly differentiated. You had the guy with the white hat and the guy with the black hat. And the audience knew who was the good guy, who was the bad guy. You also knew how it was going to turn out in the end. When I think about the so-called spaghetti westerns of Sergio Leone in the 1960s uh, with Clint Eastwood and so forth, part of what made those movies so interesting, to me at least, is there isn't this clear, sharp line between the good guys and the bad guys. Rather, there are a bunch of people many of whom are looking out for themselves. They're self-interested individuals and they're fairly ruthless and they do what they think they need to do to either survive or, or, or get what they need. And I tend to think of Deckard and Batty more along the lines of characters in those spaghetti westerns than I do in a kind of a John Wayne film from the 1940s with the good guys and the bad guys. What I mean by that is Deckard is, Deckard is operating under pressure. You know, Bryant has... Is, is got something on him. And one of the deleted scenes, one of the great things about those deleted scenes is we find out a little bit more about Bryant. And Deckard in narration says, Bryant was one of those people who knew a little bit about everyone, right? He knew something about Deckard. He had something on Deckard. And that's what, a lot, that's what gave him the leverage in the film 
to get Deckard back into the Blade Running game, even though Deckard didn't want to. I wondered why Deckard just caved in so quickly. Well, you know, that helps to explain why. So Deckard has a job to do, and he has to do it, he thinks, because otherwise he's one of the little people, whatever that means. It sounds ominous, right? Batty is doing what he does because he wants more life, and he feels driven to do that. So I'm not sure one's a good guy, one's a bad guy. They're both complex figures who are acting out of self-interest, um, and people get hurt, people get killed along the way. Okay, so second thing about Batty killing Terrell. Ah, boy, you know, it's another issue that's ripe for speculation. Here's one possibility. He didn't think about it ahead of time. In that moment, he was enraged, and he vented his rage on Tyrell by crushing him, by crushing his head. The fact that he drives his thumbs through his eyes, I think, is in keeping with the eye motif that appears throughout the film. You know, Tyrell has these incredibly thick glasses, maybe suggesting that even though he's a creative genius with great foresight in some ways, he's also myopic. You know, he's morally myopic. He's morally short-sighted. And by crushing his skull, which is holding this, the brain of a genius, according to Sebastian. Uh, oh, according to Chu, right? Right. Um, Roy is symbolically, you know, destroying the mind and the brain that created replicants in the first place. Okay, so there's the anger explanation. There's a symbolic explanation of him destroying the being who who brought him into existence only to have him die after a few years. Here's another possibility. I think I might have mentioned this in the book. It's that it's more of a Nietzschean sort of interpretation of, of that scene. Tyrell is his god. Tyrell is his creator. Roy was on a quest to get more life. When he realizes he's failed and that he can never succeed in that quest, he kills Tyrell to liberate himself from that quest. He kills him so that it's almost as if he's putting a punctuation mark at the end of a sentence and saying, that's now done. That's now over. How over is it? I've killed my own creator. There's absolutely no possibility of getting more life in that quantitative sense now. So now I can start again in the little bit of time I have left. I can now go forward with that idea firmly put aside. And I'll be honest with you, that one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and there's many great scenes, is him descending in the elevator. And he's looking up, mm -hmm. and the look on his face—it's very hard to read. But he look—it's a—it looks to me like a combination of confusion, and perplexity, and what have I done, and what's next, and now what do I do? He's overcome at that point by the realization of what this means for him. I would like to think that's the best interpretation because it provides the richest interpretation of what's going on. It's not just he did it because he was angry, which might be true, but he may, did it, he may have done it because he needed to bring that part of his quest to an end so that he could then turn his attention to how am I going to live the last few minutes of my existence? And that's what I think he does in his pursuit of Deckard through the, through the Bradbury building. He's a combat model built for optimum self-sufficiency. Even driving the spike through his hand to keep himself going is an exemplification of you know, optimum self-sufficiency. He's going to do what he needs to do to keep going. And then the last thing, sorry to keep talking like this, but no, no, no. You know, um, him saving Deckard. Uh, Rutger Hauer has said, maybe you've read this, that Roy doesn't think, he just acts. 
It was a spontaneous act. He didn't plan it. He couldn't have planned it. Uh, Decker starts to fall. His reflexes take, um, Batty's, Batty's reflexes take over. He grabs him. That's one possibility. And that's consistent with, I think, another possibility. He saves Deckard so that he's got a witness to his very last moments. He can share with Deckard what it's meant to him, or part of what it's meant to him, to be alive, to be a, to be a sentient being, to have experiences, and to know that he's going to lose those experiences. They're going to be gone forever. Last thing I'll add to that quickly. What I find interesting about both characters is when we're, rep- when we're introduced to both Deckard and Roy. Roy knows who he is. He knows he's a replicant. He knows he has. He knows his time is limited. He wants more life. He's on a mission. Deckard doesn't know who he is. Deckard's asleep at the wheel. Deckard's kind of. He's just eating. He's just existing, without purpose. And then eventually he finds purpose. So they're very. If anything, Roy's more human than Deckard in the beginning. They're very opposite. Uh, they're on opposite ends. One has purpose. I want to live. I need to live. And we all have that drive. We know what that is as humans. We want to live. And Decker doesn't seem to care. And I always, I picked up on that right away with these characters. So, Yeah, that's a different way. Of put, you know, instead of asking which one's the good guy, which one's the bad guy, to bring the conversation full circle, which one's more passionate mm-hmm. about living? And, you know, Roy wins hands down. Oh, yeah. find out more about our podcast, go to www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is also available for listening or download through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, and Podbean.